when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. You found Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this week, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello, hello. Austin Walker. Hey. And Kato, watching the signal. Yo. Uh, So, I've been thinking it over, and I think we're all working too much. Um... (laughs) And maybe it's just maybe it's just the way. Is that this a meeting or a podcast? I think it's a meeting now. Radical oh. transparency. Uh, last couple of weeks, Austin has raised some very good points at the close of each pod. Uh, fuck capitalism. Go home. I'm and, already home. Well, but I'm working there. So is it truly our home, or is the call coming from inside the house, Patrick? Damn. In some ways, we should actually, when we get into this topic, this is a a point worth (laughs) returning to. This is. Uh, But actually, that was a bit front of mind when I saw this thing come across Twitter earlier this week uh, from the People's Policy Project uh, called The Leisure Agenda. And it's written by Ryan Cooper. It's based on research uh, by the People's Policy Project and the Gravel Institute. But basically, it is the sort of comprehensive survey of how little... American workers uh, tend to have leisure time. And it starts out as being telling a story I think we're all familiar with, right? Americans compared to workers in other nations of similar with similar economies tend to work more uh, than those workers tend to. But what really caught my eye here is while it's framed in terms of leisure time, what the entire study is kind of laying out is this notion that leisure time is not necessarily the main issue. It is instead reflecting other issues, right? It's not just that Americans don't get enough vacation days, not just that workers, uh, you know, don't get there. There aren't enough holidays for workers. It is that there is a host of issues that add up to this condition of like chronic overwork in the American economy. And as you drill down into it, it increasingly moves from, we just need more time off to hang out, go on vacations, to things like parental leave, to elder care, to retirement, uh, to things like national holidays. But it really did kind of catch my attention the way this thing that we've always heard, which is just that uh, in the United States, workers tend to work more days per year. There are, f- there are fewer days off. There's less generous vacation benefits. How much of that actually uh, tends to obscure the degree to which there are a lot of real important, like real life things that require time off that we also do not get time off for? 
Yeah, I definitely think that is it is one of the things that is or it, there's there's something at work here, which is that I think in the pursuit of wanting to uphold and defend the notion of leisure time, a lot of things are getting caught under what leisure time is, including, like you said, parental leave. Um, and I, I respect the play in some way, if that makes sense, that like the idea of framing this around something called the leisure agenda, you know, straight up, straight up saying, you know, time for what you will, like having that degree of like, hey, the idea of time off has been so has been made such a rhetorical target over the years has been, you know, associated with laziness or like how many people, you know, we, we were dragging uh, that venture capitalist last week whose whole thing was if you really want to make it in this world, if you really want good, you know, sports journalism, what the deadspin writer should do is just spend their nights when they are, are they should get a nine to five. And then with their quote unquote leisure time, they should work more start blogging, start blogging. Um, and so, like, I, I do think there's value in defending leisure, but I think you're right that that when you add the symptoms up, and, and this is obvious, I suspect, to us on the call and, and also to, to many listeners, what is, at, what is at play here is something much broader and much more systemic, not just about how we use our time off or how much time off is available, but the ways in which the demands of uh, the companies we work for have chewed away at things that are just other types of um, life activities and important work that we're doing just not for that company, right? Like parenthood is one of the big ones here. I think probably the, the standout stat in terms of just like, hey, this is broken and needs to be fixed immediately uh, is looking at the paid uh, parental leave chart that, you know, at the high end, the highest high end here is the UK, uh, according to this chart, which was, which is by, who did the, who did, was this one from? Do you remember? Um, a lot of the stuff here is from OECD, um, but that does tend to be more <laughs> domestic focused stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny that the OECD, the OECD stuff there. It, it's so funny that so many of these stats come from the OECD, which is effectively a like pro marketplace, pro globalist, or like is providing stats around economic co-development. Do you know what I mean? It is it is something that grows out of uh, out of, you know, Marshall Plan style economics and the, the vision of a global marketplace and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the stat that is like so striking is UK 40 weeks of parental leave with 90 percent uh, of your of your your benefits, your, your previous earnings during that time uh, for six weeks and then uh, lower than that for for uh, the remaining weeks. Um, but if you want to take 40 weeks at reduced pay, you you keep your job. You're not going to lose your job. You're going to have that leave. A lot of a lot of nations, you know, Canada, Belgium, Austria, Australia, somewhere between 15 and 20, you know, weeks off with with you know either minimum wage, you know, half of your income or even all of your income in places like Austria, uh, coming out of social insurance, coming out of um, you know the the federal government, not necessarily just from your company. The United States zero weeks. <laughs> Zero weeks, mandatory, right? Like, you don't have that protection. Um, there is nothing... I, yeah, I, I, li I lived through that when I changed jobs coming here. Right, totally, totally, right? This like, is, um, you had to negotiate yeah, I, for that So yeah, as part of um, us bringing you in. Yeah, and that well, negotiation is uh, <clears throat> maybe a, a, a more charitable way of de describing it. Um, um, <laughs> in this story, I do know that Austin and Joel did everything that was humanly possible and, and what they could do for uh, a crummy situation. But uh, when I s chose to come over to Vice, I 
was in the midst of working at, at Kotaku slash Gawker, and they went bankrupt. They lost the case um, with Hogan and Peter Thiel and, and all that. And literally, I was working for a company that was entering bankruptcy. And I had, I remember sitting at, I was, we were at my mom's house. We were saving money for the down payment on our house. And I remember watching live as like the readout came through of how the trial finished and just started sobbing in front of my desk because I was about to buy a house. I had just bought a car and I had a kid coming in uh, like six weeks. And I was like, <laughs> like, what the fuck am I doing? And my wife had a, has a good job, but I've always bid that the, the, the higher earner. And so I feel a responsibility to have like stability and to, to provide all that. And so I started thinking about doing something else. And so uh, I had two offers in front of me. I could have gone to uh, Rolling Stone. Oof, but glad that mm, cool. glad I did not choose door A. Um, good people, but great you know, people. That didn't Fantastic work out. people at Clixel. Shout out to um, the people who ran Clixel. That's what I will say. Yeah, yeah. John Davison, like, you know, was a Miguel, like huge part of me getting into this industry and yeah. all that. Yeah, really, really good people. But, um, and I had, and I had advice, and I decided I wanted to work with you, Austin. And I was like, uh, uh, so I remember in telling Gawker that I was leaving or telling, you know, Stephen Totillo at, at, at Kotaku that I was leaving, you know, one of the things that he pitched to me on staying was, well, hey, you're going to get three months if you stay here. And you're like, you're the one of the first people on the staff to have a young child. Like, we're all going to negotiate this together. And so if you need like more leeway and stuff like that, like you're going to get it. Um, and like that was a big part of the the, the idea of staying, even though it was going to be a tumultuous time. And what I told him was, well, um, you can't guarantee me this is all going to work out. And what I need is I'd rather bet on another big company that gets bored being part of media in two years because then I can deal with that in two years instead of right now with this kid on the way. And so then, um, you know, figured stuff out um, with Vice. But then, like, one of the last sticking points was about the time off I'd get with my kid who was going to be born a couple of weeks after I started my job. And I had would have had three months at Gawker. Um, and basically I think when I was in negotiations with both Rolling Stone and Vice, um, they basically said like, you're a new employee, like you're not owed anything. Um, and I said, yeah, but this isn't a charity. I'm like choosing to come work for you. Like, yeah, I don't need to do this. I could stay at this job. They're like, yeah, no. Um, yeah, you're not, we're not going to get, and I'd already in my head negotiated down to a month. And so I was willing to accept a month um, because I work from home. And so I was like, well, I'll still see, be around. I could help my wife out. And like, um, I was like, I'd, I'd, already, I'd already conceded like a, like right. a ground I, sh- I shouldn't have. Yep. But I was accepting the reality of the situation that was in front of me. Um, and then when, once I chose the door of vice and I was figuring out the final bits of that, they said, well, we can't give you even a month because that would set a bad precedent for hires in the future. I was like, what do you mean a bad precedent? And they're like, and this is HR specific. This is not Austin and Joel <laughs> telling me like you can't have I think this. when I found um, this out, I was furious. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, out, like, it was out of everyone's controls. I, I was dealing with no HR idea. on my own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to make it clear, like, the, like they, if they could have given me three months, they would they would have happily let me have those three months. But um, they said no. If you, you know, if if people find out that you're a new hire and just because you're a high profile new hire and you got that time, well, you know what other people are going to do. Well, they're going to ask for that time too. It's like, yeah, 
That seems pretty reasonable, actually. Yeah, um, I hope they do. Basically, <laughs> and basically they said uh, no. And I don't feel bad disclosing this part, which is basically like, I told you guys I was really disappointed because um, you only get this that experience once with your child. And I wanted to be there not just for the kid, but to help my wife out who had just <laughs> gone through a lot of bullshit to get to this point. And, you know, you got basically Vice said you can have two weeks. Um I have no earned vacation at that point, you know what I mean? So I can't even stack stuff like that on. And then you guys said, look, you can have another two weeks. We just won't tell anybody. And yep. so, like, I ended up getting my month. But, like, the way we all – and I'm sorry for, like, such a long story. But, like, I think it illustrates a lot of, like, a lot of things we're pulling at here. The ways we all negotiated how we got to that one month – um, where I still think I even recorded podcasts during that extra two weeks just so I could, like, get the ball rolling on things. Yeah. Like, that's a bunch of horse shit, like, um, how we arrived at that place. And it sucks. Like, it really, it really, really sucks. But, like, I had no power because there's no national federal mandate. That's just at the will of a bunch of companies who didn't want to set precedence for how employees should be treated. Uh, and on top of that, there's just, like, you happened to know the people you were being hired by would be cool with that. Like for a lot of new employees right. at companies, <clears throat> they're not going to have a relationship with their boss. They're like, hey, can I actually just secretly take an extra two weeks to spend with my kid? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like right. um, there's another version of this where, where you know, if, if you worked at Deadspin right now and they were happened to, happened to be having a kid, you would have wound up. Like, okay, I'm going to take a new job, and then, fuck, what? Now what? You know what I mean? Like, this new, this new job is not going to let me have that. A lot of people who are not even in, uh, you know, obviously, like, the, the other half of this is, like, you own a house and are in, like, we're working a pretty solid middle-class job at Kotaku. Families who are yeah. not, who do not have that degree of income, who, you know, have no. both parents, you know, uh, uh, needing to, to, you know, be in the workforce. In, in a situation like that, like, there's even less of a not that you don't not that both yeah, you my, and your wife I are was both. A, I had a shitty situation and yes. it was a good outcome yes. relative everything else and like that's what I thought about through that whole I was like I had all the advantages and it still sucked yeah and oh, I think a lot of what this piece helps unpack um, is like okay uh, like well what does that mean for um, you know, a lot of folks with with lesser means, with lesser advantages. I mean, it's jumping ahead, but you know the you know the Kamala Harris proposal. You know, um, advantages uh, someone like me that works like a a nine to five ish job. You know, less advantages yes. someone that you know maybe works a night shift or something like that. But that's all built into how we conceive of these policies and who they are aimed at, and and especially the the overly broad quote middle class. Yeah. Also, briefly, I do want to say one of the things that the vice union fought for was parental leave. Uh, and now the policy from HR is that if you're here for 90 days, so this would not have helped you at all, no. uh, <laughs> at all. But if you're here for 90 days, but it's, but it's better. I think. I think um, you would have gotten because I think weeks otherwise you had to now. be there for a full year yeah. before. Um, um, and I, you know, I, I can uh, you know the negotiations of that are even more complicated for women. Um, like over different parts of my wife's career, like as, you know, we thought about having children and stuff like that. Well, if you're, you know, attempting to have a child, you can't think also think about switching jobs because you have to suddenly think about what your benefits are going to be and what you get access to. And yep. so you end up staying in miserable, potentially miserable positions because, well, you need that benefit to, to take advantage of because you're not going to get that if you switch place unless you're 
uniquely situated and they make that part of like your your signing package, which most people don't get a signing package. The other thing here is that it normalizes that sort of leave. Um, The very first job I had as a professional, like the first post post uh, college job I had was miserable for a bunch of reasons. Uh, One shining nice spot in it was I had a boss who I liked quite a bit and who I thought was very nice. I left that company and then found out after the fact that when she uh, had a child and requested uh, maternal leave, uh, she was fired. They cooked up some reason to fire her. Jesus. That had nothing to do with the fact that she was going to be out of work for a few months and they'd have to pay her, you know, while while being out or like it was part of whatever. Uh, instead of doing that, they cooked up a reason to fire her and they fired her and replaced her. Um, and that is, I mean, to be clear, that shit happens. There's always someone who slips through the cracks. People find ways to game systems, etc. But part of the reason that you want there to be paternal, or sorry, not paternal, parental leave, um, uh, generally, is because it curbs that stuff and normalizes that right. as part of what the workforce looks like. Uh, and and not everywhere has a union, right? Like part of the reason why it's great that we have a union that's gotten us to where now 12 weeks of parental leave is paid by vice, like is that it, it helps us. But like it, it isn't that we can't count on every workplace having that. Many workplaces are even more effective at crushing their unions than than the ones that we've been part of. Do you know what I mean? Like so right. there is there or, or preventing them from organizing to begin with. Uh, uh, and that is one of the reasons why you look for for large scale nationwide federal regulation, federal mandate on this stuff, because it, it at least begins to put some leashes out there. Uh, and 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 again, it's about a cultural shift. It is about changing attitudes that will lead to people accepting these things as, as normative and not just thinking of them as exceptional. Right. Like when you asked HR for that, the fact that they were like, well, this is this is weird <laughs> is fucked up and reflects. And also. Right. The other thing to note here is we have a completely different HR department than we did back then. Things happened at Vice. What happened to the old one? Huh. Weird. <laughs> what happened to the old one? The fuck out of here. Also, also uh, untethering it from uh, jobs and like making it a federal mandate is super yes. useful for people who are uh, part-time. Like the people who pl- work multiple jobs that are part-time aren't getting benefits anywhere. And that sort of like leave from any one of those jobs is like you're going to get replaced, right? So like this uh, – it's not just like about it, – it, it, it affects such a, a wide swath of people past just like, you know, salaried people who – sometimes people in uh, – People who are worse off, you can easily look up at salaried people and be like, what are you worried about? You have a salary, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I've got a part-time job that uh, could, feels like it could replace me at any moment, right? So, totally. Like, well, and this is actually one of my critiques of this piece, which I – or this this plan, I guess. This pro, – this, I guess it's a – is that what we would call it? A plan? This study? It's, it's not a policy a study. agenda, right? Okay. It's yeah. like – like, genuinely, this it's, is like – this is basically a, a fancy white paper. I was going to say it's basically right. a white paper, right? Yeah. Um, it's a white paper with good images in it, with with, with nice layout, um, <laughs> nice fonts. Yeah, the the thing that it, the one space I wish it had spoken to directly was the trend in our economy of moving people out of full time jobs, not even just salary job, but but just full time work. Uh, into gig economy, you know, uh, uh, positions into freelancer economy stuff, places where these benefits would not kick in because you're not an employee at all. This is also a global phenomenon. This is the thing, like, some of the direct comparison of, like, ah, the American worker does this, but in the UK they have this. And I'm like, how are we defining, across these different markets, these different economies, Mm -hmm. 
how are we defining workers here? Because yeah. to me, workers is anyone who's making a living through their wages, right? Through wages or salary, like it, that's you're your a worker. income and not your yeah 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 sure right right. Uh, and my one beef with that is, with that that Drew uh, Magri piece the other day. The bit about him saying he's a capitalist. It's like, no, you're not. You're a worker. Like, I get you mean ideologically. I get you mean that you're accepting that you're hypocritically like to own materialistic things. But one thing you don't own is you don't buy other people's labor power. You don't own the means. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. anyway. anyway. I, but, shout out to Drew. Shout out, Go read Drew's piece that's up on Vice <laughs> right now, actually. But like, so one of the things that uh, Germany is a good example here is that Germany does have good – uh, labor conditions and benefits for workers, but then also it has an inco- an incomplete definition of worker. Right there are there are full time workers who enjoy the protections of all these like normal uh, labor relations that exist codified in the law, and then there are contract workers and subcontractors and migrant workers uh, who do not fall under those rules and regulations and even though many in many cases end up doing the same job are not enjoying any of those same benefits and i think this is one of one of the things that when it's it is instructive to see what things are codified in the law when you look at these other markets but i think it is dangerous to assume that there's no way to weasel out of that it's dangerous to assume that every person working a job in germany or the uk or france is enjoying uh, sweet, sweet benefits because that is just not the case. And in some ways, some of the social safety net is being withheld from people and maybe being underwritten by exploited classes of workers who are not recognized by these laws and statutes. And I think that's the other – the useful thing about being in – the uh, United States right now at a time when none of these protections are <laughs> exist uh, is that you can at least begin by acknowledging that everyone that most everyone is in the same shitty boat uh, in terms of if we have benefits they're provided at the pleasure of a company but <laughs> grudgingly <laughs> yeah, yeah but they're but they're not something that like the law is really going is is like actively out there protecting you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we begin this discussion of, well, how would we reinvent the system, one of the first things you have to make sure is it has to preclude the possibility that somebody can be a 39-hour-a-week worker for a major corporation and not get any of those full-time benefits, right? To be, be out on the cold on all this stuff. And or, or maybe they're not even working for a major corporation. They're working for a subcontractor, which only has one client, and it's a major corporation, major corporation. That's the type of stuff that we need to watch out for because it is something that has been used to undermine workers' rights and workers' protections in a lot of these markets where worker protections were pretty well-developed. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I think that, like, one of the – I don't want this to turn into, like, us piling on this, this you know, proposal uh, uh, be, because that is the thing that we do is, like, look at a thing that's like, yeah, this is good. Here are the ways in which I, I don't think it aligns up perfectly with blah, 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 blah. Um, but I do – But also, like, a white, yes. paper, a white paper in some degree is meant to, like, inspire conversation. Exactly. It's to give mm-hmm. – it's, it's an agenda to, like – for you to say, okay, well – 
I, I like this, but I don't like this. I mean, it's it's really there aren't that many poli- like there are some policy yeah, prescriptions, but they're, but they're but not. It is it is it's overly broad on purpose because it's meant to hopefully spur what's happening here. Like I I don't know yes. that. You know, I don't know Ryan Cooper's politics, but like my guess is like someone writing something like this would like looks at a discussion like they goes like, yeah, OK. He's like, or is even Here's, like I said, I set it up. You take the ball. You go run. Or is it. even like, yeah, I know we didn't have the funding and time to get into right. the gig economy <laughs> to get into, you know, the way that this reflects global attitudes, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I, I get it for sure. But I mean, the thing for me, the thing the thing that I think that I, I do want to say that is like that stuff needs to be part of these conversations if those conversations are going to actually have a long-term effect uh, and not just be the kind of uh, fuel for folks, for basically like bourgeois folks like us to like make our situation better without affecting the base, right? Um, this is No, but isn't that, that's the same way in which like the, the ever-expanding notion of like middle class is meant to like appeal to a large group of people who are really just like, a voting block, and instead you are ignoring like uh, you know underprivileged uh, poorer people because well you can't rely necessarily on their votes. So we'll just expand this like middle class definition and like point it at them, well, which is why like you know also, but, but, this white this white paper like like fits within that sort of framework in which we we often the workers were talk about like purposely or 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 and incidentally leave out those other types of people that need that help because. Uh, I mean, that's just the framework we've we've developed. I think it's a little better than that. I think if you like, as as I drill down into this piece, I think one of the things that keeps returning to is though, if you look at any one of these categories of like time off, you see serious underlying social issues. Uh, when you know, when you add up, when you, you just have averages, uh, I think the the headline number is uh, American workers uh, work two hundred and sixty nine more hours per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, than workers in similar economies, but you know that's that's a big number. But what do, where is it coming from? What is what is generating it? It is a number being generated by the fact that uh, a lot of our elders don't have real retirement anymore. Yeah, and th- this is certainly a boat that uh, I think my parents are somewhat in right now. Like I know my dad is doing substitute teaching. Partly that's because he's a teacher and he likes teaching. He likes working with kids, but. Would he also like to be sitting at home reading a book <laughs> during uh, maybe know, doing it less frequently than he is? Yeah, exactly. I don't know, uh, but I but I think you know when you, when you look at like why, like where are those hours coming from, it's coming from people who probably should have the option of fully retiring by this point in their in their in their working lives, and they just don't, and they're continuing to work. It's coming from people who are not getting time off to be with their kids. It's coming from people who are not being given leave to deal with illnesses, either their own or a family member's. Like all of those numbers, they strike across, uh, they do strike across classes, but at the same time, they're particularly acute for people who are not in the most stable uh, and predictable lines of work, right? Those issues become critical um, and life-altering for folks who are more vulnerable to disruptions in, uh, you know, how, how much they collect in wages uh, per week. And so I think the, the one thing I, I do want to credit the, this piece for is it starts by looking at this big, the, this big number of, like, Americans work too much. U.S. workers just spend too much time on the job. And... 
initially it sort of hooks you with this notion of, yeah, damn, we should all be on the beach more. And it's like, no, it's not, it's not just beach time we're missing. It is the fact that like, there's never gonna, for a lot of people, there's never going to be that time on the beach when you're, you're, you're in your sixties or seventies, right? There's never going to be the man. I'm really sick. I'm not doing well. I just need, I need, I need a month to get right. You know, I need a month of physical therapy and recovery. Right. None of that exists for folks. And so I, I, the thing I do like about this is it frames it in terms of things we call use more of, which is free time. But if you look at it closely, I think there's an element of we shouldn't have to justify with some special policy case every single th- thing we need time off for, right? We shouldn't constantly be going around being like, oh, gee, you know, I need a policy for, uh, you know, my parents are ill and I need to spend more time caring for them. So I need a bucket of time that I can draw from so that I can go take care of my family. And I need different bucket of time so that I can go and take care of my kid. And if I get sick, here's, we shouldn't be in that position, like what you're talking about earlier, Patrick, we shouldn't constantly in that, be in that position of being like, Here's a case for why I might need time to myself away from work. Is it worthy to be paid a a living wage and not fear for my uh, livelihood? And I think that's what I like about this is you look at this problem from all these different angles and suddenly what sounds like a luxury good becomes very, very clearly a major quality of life and, uh, economic security issue. And it builds it around, I think, a central claim, or it, it begins, uh, or early up at least, it starts with the central claim that is so important to return to again and again, which is that, like, when you consider how much the economic output of our country has boomed over the last century, when we consider the fact that, frankly, we do not need to work this much, the degree of of, uh, of of efficiency that has entered into the workplace, the degree to which one worker's eight hours now produces X amount of wealth. And then a thing I wish that the piece did get even more into is where that wealth goes, who gets that wealth that is produced, uh, how that is chopped up uh, is it indicates – how badly we have all we, we have the ability to do this, how, how strongly we have the ability to step away as an economy. Uh, and I think this is actually why it, it is a little flippant when it gets down to the bit where it's like, how do we do this? Uh, and and it, like almost like as an aside, um, the uh, Ryan Cooper basically is like, luckily, all the above problems are easily fixable. And I actually love that it takes that <laughs> position because they are. Right. Reforming the marketplace, reforming the market, reforming the the way labor works in this country will not overturn the system in such a way that it stops functioning. Um, And I say that obviously as someone who would like to do more than just light reforms. uh, But those reforms that would benefit real working people all around the country uh, and and long term, I suspect, all around the world would uh, not make it so that we wouldn't be in this office tomorrow making content. Do you know what I mean? Like there isn't the the economy Mm -hmm. wouldn't fall off the rails. Uh, What what would happen is some people who are extremely rich would become only a little less extremely rich in the process. Uh, also, fuck off Bill Gates. Uh, I, don't know if <laughs> I was, I was just going to say to in my head yeah. the entire time uh-huh. was the Gates quote. Uh-huh. I don't have it in front of me. Look, um, the, hey, the next time you spend $100 million 
on bad education policy, yeah, uh-huh. you can speak. <laughs> until then, <laughs> until you have flushed billions down the drain on poorly on, on poor educational premises. What was that? Was the Booker and Zuckerberg did that whole failed initiative some years back too? Right, like, and that was a lot of money, right? That was like in the billions. Actually, well, there's that whole like Zuckerberg is like I'm giving my fortune to charity, but it was like a personal charitable trust. Well, no, that's that's how they all do it. They they they, they're giving it away through an LLC that they control, and then they're. They're get they what was it because there was like something going I don't know it was a tweet thread or an article that was along the lines of like uh, it was Bloomberg or something that was like it's so hard to give away your money because your money just keeps making money and so rich people they want to be philanthropic but it's just it's hard to give away your it's money so hard like, if only just, they would maybe give some of that money to uh, policy groups that were advocating for higher wealth taxes maybe that would help them lose huh. their money. Uh, fucking God. Anyway, the, the Bill Gates quote was uh, on a wealth. He's talking about wealth taxes <laughs> it's so here. Good. It's I've paid over 10 billion in taxes. I've, I've paid more than anyone in taxes. If I had to pay 20 billion, it's fine. But when you say I should pay 100 billion, then I'm starting to do a little math uh, over what I have left over. <laughs> He's the answer, by the way, is six billion dollars is what if you right. just took lump sum 100 billion away. But that is also not actually what would happen no. under the, Liz Warren's proposed tax plan. Uh, he would still continue to make money indefinitely is the actual math. answer. He would put his money would make that money back that yes. he lost. Probably. Yes. Well, I think I think that points to another thing. This was this was related. Uh, it's it's in a similar vein. Speaking of Bill Gates, mm-hmm. uh, we saw some headlines this week about this study that Microsoft Japan did, where they tested a four day work week. And there have been multiple studies about four day work weeks and like whether they work. And in general, the research seems to come back pretty consistently. Like, yeah, four day work weeks are pretty good, especially for as we've sort of all been inculcated. Uh, one of the benefits of a modern services-oriented economy is so much work now is intellectual. It's creative. And the five-day the five day a week, eight-hour-a-day work week wasn't really built for that. And when you test things out, like a four-day work week uh, in like more creative or intellectual-type jobs um, – you find that people do the same amount of work frequently more uh, and are happier. And yet it still feels like we're a million miles away from anyone being like, you know, we should just fucking codify that. We should just start cutting back on how many hours we're keeping our offices open. And I find that interesting because if because if the if the studies keep coming back and saying like well from the standpoint of good for the business good for the employees it keeps pointing in this one direction which is cut a work day out why does it feel like it's no closer to happening so do those people in the study do they just go back to that five-day work week yeah <laughs> like you imagine you do. i think they do Jesus i think they do Christone. that's the first thing i thought of was like imagining part of a study where it's like for a year or whatever. I don't know how long so it was. So it was only a month this, is worth saying. It was only a month? Yeah. Okay. Which is just All like right. you got four summer Fridays. which is That's a tease. <laughs> it is a tease. 
Uh, it sounds dope. That's like a sample yeah. of, sample of ice cream as opposed to getting the actual two scoops. Yeah. So I think you'd be able to readjust, but it would still suck. <laughs> yeah. Su- it still suck. And especially like the, the result of the study is like, yo, this actually seems pretty good. Back to work on Friday. Yep. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's, cool. it's tricky, right? Uh, or it's not tricky. The thing that's tricky about it that I, that I get cu- caught up on is the thing you just identified, Rob, which is like when you... What is the trade-off when you couch something in the terminology of this is good for the company versus this is a right or we deserve this or this is a way to protect people and give them the time that they deserve because they're already producing so much value for this privately owned company? Or I guess it was Toyota or who was it, Microsoft and – it was Microsoft and some car company, right? Am I wrong about this? I think it was just Microsoft. I think this study was just Microsoft. Why did I think it was tied to? Anyway, um, uh, regardless, the point is like it's a I, Microsoft is probably publicly traded, but the 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 value there, the, the, for me, there is value in arguing it the way the People's Project uh, Policy Initiative did, which is like this is good for people more than this is good for the company. But I know that we make those trade-offs all the fucking time. I know I've been in the room where I've had to do the sort of like, well, this is why we should all have a work from home day is because da 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 it makes us better at our jobs. It makes it, it lets us play games and do reviews on company time instead of doing afterwards and having be, being having people be burnt out and blah, blah, blah. So like I get having to do that. Um, but But I do think that part of the reason you won't see it actually come into effect is because when you start arguing in the case of this is good for the company, then you're arguing against other instances of this is good for the company. And that opens up the door to someone else in the company being like, yeah, but here's another way in which it's bad for us. When you argue from the position of this is a human right, this is a right that is uh, enforced by law. This is something about what workers deserve. It's a harder hill to climb because you don't, you don't get that buy-in where you're like, and the company's bottom line, wink, wink. Uh, but the end result is something a lot firmer and uh, and a lot more resistant to the sort of like, well, this is good for our bottom line counter argument because I don't give a fuck about your bottom line in that situation. When we say that like there's a national holiday, there's a national holiday. You don't get to counter that by going about my company. Like, all right, well, then if you're going to keep people here for the national holiday, you're going to pay them extremely well for not going to the company holiday. That's something that would be protected by law. Um so yeah, that is those are the those are the things where it's like I think that those are really useful because they produce the outcomes like that that say, hey, look, actually, this is better all around. People are better at what they do when they get rest, when they're allowed to have some time, when they're allowed to connect to the outside world. Um, but I wouldn't build a policy. I personally wouldn't build a policy proposal around it. But I will thumbs up someone who does and let them be. They would be the person. I'd be happy to let somebody else make that case on the behalf of workers. You know. No, I think – I guess for me what I find inter- – like what I find useful about the – looking at it from the standpoint of what creates a healthy, sustainable business uh, with higher performing outcomes is when you see – when you start seeing a broad agreement among research that this is probably the best practice mm-hmm. and yet it's still not adopted – I think the the fun thing about looking at it that way is it invites speculations to then what other motivation would there be to resist this logic, right? If if businesses are just these reasoning machines that just seek optimal outcomes, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> right. across, like regardless of regardless of what they are doing, regardless of what business they are in, they are just cold bloodedly pursuing efficiency and profit. 
And if the the route there is more time for workers, better conditions, et cetera, and companies resist it, and they often do, it is useful then to question if there aren't other, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's useful to question if there aren't other interests that are not being stated totally about the way things are being operated that are contrary to the logic we are often fed about, you know, competitive job markets and the will of the market. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, what is the, I mean, again, this speaks to the, going back to the Bill Gates th- thing, excuse me. Um, you know, uh, he knows that Liz Warren's plan would not make him broke. He knows that, but he he opposes it anyway. So what is not being said there in the same way here of like, hey, this is a thing where the companies know they wouldn't go broke for doing this and in fact would get benefit. So what is their desire? Why not? rock the boat here why not do the thing that seems like it would benefit them and also who knows maybe microsoft will make that decision down the road based on this thing that hasn't happened yet um you know those that was only a pretty recent study i think it was this august is when they ran the study uh the, the 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 test um so who knows but the fact that they that they wouldn't the fact that bill gates knows that he wouldn't go broke and yet still opposes it does to me suggest something about the desirability of keeping things on track at a larger scale, not leaning towards, uh, not opening the door to, to larger potential reforms and changes. Um, not like, don't give anybody any ideas. That style of like uh, hyper conservative in just strategy, tactical, I mean, also conservative politically, but that style of like, don't give them an inch, they'll take a yard. Um, there is a, a real concerted effort to keep people in the dark about their class and about like what their class interests are um, and about what is genuinely possible without shaking their lives that much. Uh, And so I, I always see this stuff and I I just think, you know, is this someone who knows that once you give people a taste of what a better life is, they will start not just like, not just saying like, Oh wow, it would be cool. But advocating for themselves, organizing, working together, opening new doors by themselves and putting the pieces together. I think we've seen that happen in our industry, in the media industry in the last five, five years as digital media uh, uh, offices begin to unionize. Like here are particular ways in which this has gotten better. Here are ways in which having uh, an organized uh, unified block of workers to negotiate with management for material benefits, like is better for you. And that doesn't, that has also more likely than not that it's going to exist at this point, right? right? Like yes. it's not even a, a unicorn like it was when Gawker, yes, first when Gawker like got the ball, totally. the ball rolling on that. Um, and now you just expect like, oh, when a media company reaches a certain size, uh, like whether it's a new one, like the ringer, which like, like, you know, had their union recognized at least like pretty quickly, which is unlike most, you know, the timeline for a lot of that stuff. But now it's like, you can actually like reasonably assume that like, if all of us were to switch jobs and like go to a major media company, like there's a decent chance that you're just going to ju- like, I've gone from one, one union to another union, which like, that's, that's like, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like that's like, that's that, that, that happened. And that would be at least a decent chance that it would happen again. If I was even just to roll the dice on, you know, 10, 15 major media companies that you could go to um, from here. Um, it's like a really encouraging development, but also that happened because a couple people put their hands up, you know, did the work, and then not that any new union is no work, but you got the courage that it's possible because you could point at other examples. And it's like, well, they did it. Why can't we have that too? Yep. And 
when you don't have those examples to point to, then they'll just throw their hands up and go, well, why, why should we give you that? Um, I, so it's, 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 it's really cool. We also are underselling, I mean, not to just turn this into like a union rah-rah, like powerhouse hour, uh, but one of the things that happens when you start to unionize a workforce is that non-union workplaces begin to have to compete with unionized workplaces. Um, and right. that means that they're still going to pay less or they're still going to offer less benefits. They're still going to, but there is generally, you will see uh, like those effects have knock-on effects even to non-unionized places on a long term. And so like the, the, you know, benefits that are earned here today, if, if the unions continue in the digital market, the digital media marketplace, you will see other companies needing to compete with that. I would love for those protections to be legal and not just rely on unions. I would love to see that stuff uh, adjust. And, and one of the biggest questions for me is how workers who are freelancers and who are doing, you know, gig economy work on via apps who are doing – I mean like when I say workers at this point, I do mean me, right? Like I am now a contract employee of this company. I get paid uh, part-time. I get paid, you know, based on a, a per day rate. Um, my other income is Patreon. Uh, or is I'm doing this comic, this New Day comic, that's a contract pay. Like these are not – I am now in that category of, of f- freelance worker. And it's like well, how do we begin to organize? How do we figure out a way to get protections? Um, uh, some of that can be done through guilds. You can be a freelance writer as part of various writers guilds. But um, that is going to be the place that as companies ad- adjust and begin to address the sort of like – burgeoning workers movements uh, in, in our nation, I guarantee you, you will see big companies continue to turn to freelancers, continue to look for loopholes where people are not actually part of, not actually employees, and so they're not part of whatever the union is, move towards uh, bringing on uh, uh, workers who are under whatever the hour count is to be counted as, as full-time employees. Um, not that that doesn't happen already, but I, I look for that stuff. And for me, the big challenge of, of this next decade is going to partially be, inside of labor, is going to be how do you organize laborers who are not even considered employees uh, so that they can advocate for themselves. We'll see. We'll see how uh, that goes. And also, the other the other big thing that just didn't come up in this piece, uh, the last thing I have on this, on the, the People's Policy, uh, the People's Policy Project uh, a study or, or, or white paper um, is race, which just 100% absent from this piece in even a mention uh, outside of outside of the fact that like in showing lots of working class photos, we should note that the piece is kind of dotted with these kind of nostalgic, um, uh, you know, photos of workplaces from the 20th century from throughout the 20th century, ranging from like the 50s, like the post-war period, basically 50s to like, I'd say like the, the early 80s. Um, there are lots of black folk in there, uh, but this is not a piece that engages at all with the question of how these uh, how having federal benefits often is one way in which to protect black or, or, or marginalized workers in general because as federally mandated protections they they help to uh, get across bigotry and and for and kind of force their way into workplaces that would otherwise give white workers benefits that uh, workers of color wouldn't have access to um, but that doesn't come up as a potential benefit even it's not even on the radar for the people's policy project in terms of this particular uh, output and that's not to say that the people working there don't think about race, but I do wish the policy project or the, the policy proposal had kind of at least addressed that to some degree. Um, but that is all I have on, on this at this point. I have, a, I have a specific question. Okay, so when we were negotiating our union at, at Gawker, yeah. which is like 
separately a very enlightening process because it was my first like real interaction or thinking about a union since I was like a grocery worker at Jewel in which I was mostly just mad that I was forced to be in a union because I was like, I'm 14. Why do I have to lose some of my wages to this? Like I just, I was, was too young to understand what was going on. Um, but like we were, because Gawker was so new to all of this, they, it was like, there weren't models to look at for like, what should we fight for? Like it was a lot of like, what do we want? And like one of the things that came up, um, and I like most things I thought were like, that's just a good idea. I'll sign on. And, like one of the ones I like ended up having like weirdly strong opinions about was like the vacation day policy. So um, like I have a lot of friends that work in, you know, I live in San Francisco for a while. So friends that work in Silicon Valley and stuff like that. And there's been this, uh, you know, trend towards um, these are more extreme examples. But like in campuses like Facebook and and Google, you have like they've got cafeterias, unlimited vacation time. Like they, there are ways in which like, it's not, like benefits actually like end up making you work more. And so like one pull out of this was uh, we were voting on whether we should argue for unlimited vacation time in which you negotiate with like your manager to just take whatever time you want or prescribed vacation time like two weeks or three weeks or whatever. And end up being like something like 60, 40, like in the voted for unlimited vacation time. But like, I really vehemently like disagreed with that because I think unlimited vacation time is a mirage. It's It's bullshit. And it, it, there are people probably that realize, aha, I should take the time that I need. I am afforded unlimited time. I will take it. But everyone I know, (laughs) most people I know end up not taking time because now the option in front of us wasn't the ideal, which would be, two or three weeks of uh, yeah. vacation time. And if you choose not to take it, you'll get paid out that vacation time. Like that should be, like I think ideally you get like a month. And then if you don't take it, you get paid that month or some percentage of it, you know, uh, uh, you know, half of it or something yeah. like that. Um, but they all voted for only vacation time. And I was like, this is bad for me because I just know I won't take it. But if in front of me, I have like two and a half weeks and those disappear, they don't roll over or whatever. So I, I don't know. It was like one of those things where, uh, in negotiating a, a one specific thing, it like ended up teasing out a lot of ideas I had about like how I'm treated as a worker and how I'm valued. And this was not the company putting this on us. No. This was the un- this was the, the, the people choosing this. But I was like, I really disagree with this choice because you're all choosing something that, for most people I know, they're just not going to take as much time off when they don't have a number that's staring at them that disappears at the end of well, the year. And it highlights something like that. Really highlights what norms exist for workers in a culture within a company. And one of the things that actually linked this really tremendous Cadillac ad ad from a few (laughs) years ago, uh, starring Neil McDonough. Um, You may remember, he's a guy standing by a pool. And it's his day off. And he starts talking about how he does, like, Americans don't take days off. Why? Because they're and basically just goes on this Gordon Gecko like unhinged rant where it's like because we're fucking alpha basically is what is, is is what he's driving at. But there is this notion of Americans are relentlessly propagandized to see themselves as highly individual actors who are carving out a bold lifestyle for themselves via their work. And as part of that, I think there's a lot of acculturation in workplaces. We've all known that guy. I think, you know, my grandfather probably was this guy of, I don't take days off. I don't, sorry, I never use a sick day. Oh, I don't take, I don't take vacations. And 
that shit's always performative. Uh, the I don't take sick time person is somebody I, I particularly uh, want to <laughs> shove off a building uh, because <laughs> because that person is basically like I'm the infection vector for everyone in my workplace. Uh, but people like like but that stuff serves two functions. One, it reassures the person who sort of takes that line that they are a good worker and it allows them to flatter themselves that they are irreplaceable. They're indispensable. I can't take a day off. This place would fall apart without, without me. And like the secret is it probably wouldn't, it wouldn't, it'd probably be just fine. It was just Uh, fine. I learned it. You could be gone for a month or someday the company might decide if you were just gone forever, it would still be just fine. And you know, that's that's something that could happen. I love that uh, how black helicopter body bag that felt. The company could decide you could be gone and it would be just fine. <laughs> Zip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, body being Austin, dragged out the uh, wall. We've decided the building. Um, you're on limited time off. We're giving you we're giving it to you now. We're giving you all at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um uh, I, I wanna but, add, but go ahead. No, but just a just a complete point. The the other thing I would say is uh, the the other part of this is it's a way to distinguish themselves from their fellow workers, right? Oh, these folks are going to take time off because they're shirkers, but I'm a good little employee and I'm not going to take that time. Yeah, I want to underscore the fact that it. it so two things. One, um, decide which is. I'll do the the smaller one and then the big. Well, they're both big, but I'll do the one that I can throw to something else. Second, first is. Uh, those pol- that policy that's particularly the the uh, the the unlimited time off thing um, that that hits different so to speak if you are not like a hyper confident white dude who has been in a lot of jobs and I mean or who's felt like success throughout many jobs and Patrick you are that you are that and you still were like nah nah mm-hmm. nah I know I'm gonna not take advantage of this um, but like. As a black dude who every workplace I've been in, I felt like I need to overachieve to emphasize that I am not being lazy because I'm constantly combating stereotypes about what black workers are. Like that policy would not be something I would ever feel comfortable taking advantage of without feeling like I was more at risk. And depending on who my boss is at any given you know job, that is being – you are more at risk because the your boss is in a culture which has made them think, OK, as a black worker, I got to be extra careful and make sure that this person doesn't slack off. That is the stere- – even if they've worked hard to like overcome their stereotypes or overcome the, the culture stereotypes, that is a risk that is always at play that is an unconscious bias when looking at marginalized folks. Like, oh, is this someone who is taking more time off because they have a medical condition? Do I have to be careful of how often this person lets their you know chronic fatigue get to them or whatever, something like that? Like uh, Across like different types of marginalization, that style of open-ended, like just take what you need uh, – tends to be extra risky for those of us who have attitudes uh, prescribed by the culture about us that make us already seem flaky or lazy or like a, a, a professional risk. Uh, again, like there was like a deeply ableist 
side to that style of of thing. And and it isn't me saying that the people who voted for that are ableist or racist. Like what it is saying is this is one of the reasons why. And this is the second point I want to make that you need your your unions, you need your organizations to be diverse. You need your workplaces to be diverse because those points won't even be brought up unless you have a certain amount of of uh, of folks from the margins there to bring them up to begin with. Um, and and a thing that happens a lot is you put policies in place that make sense, and then you diversify your workplace, and suddenly those policies, which made sense for the folks who were there before, like suddenly you start to see what the other side of the coin is. Um, and and again, the bigger second point is none of this stuff is an end. Like none of this stuff has like a period at the end of it. Creating a union is not like did it. We're done. <laughs> A union is is so no, it's, like it's a constant negotiation. Yeah, and progress is a constant negotiation. Improvement is a constant negotiation. Like I am someone who deeply believes in utopia as a process and not as a as a as a, uh, a teleological ending of history. Right? Like I don't. I think making the world better is about putting processes in place, putting attitudes in place, supporting those attitudes and supporting the those processes with, you know, budget with <laughs> with resourcing to continually reflect, analyze and improve. Like I don't think that you can get to a point where you're like and then we're done. Certainly not under capitalism, but even my most utopian vision of what uh, a socialist future could look like is not one at which our work is done. Our work is not done. And I know that that can be like deflating in some ways, but like we will never have put enough work in. There will always be work to be done in terms of checking for new bias, in terms of continuing to uh, figure out places where we can make people's lives better and continuing to de-escalate when, when um, there are, there are uh, issues where uh, new, new power hierarchies emerge. Like that stuff is going to continue happening. Um, and, and, that means that being active in your union, being active in your workplace as a leader, adding your voice to conversations when policy decisions are being made at your, you know, in your professional organization, wherever it is, is a thing you need to continue to do. You have to continue working on the things, that, the tools that you build, right? Like a union is a tool and you have to keep it sharp, right? If, if a union is a knife meant to cut your way towards equality, like it's going to become a dull knife if you don't continually, uh, uh, you know, wet the damn thing. And so, and so that is like one of my big pieces here. It's like I don't think I don't I suspect some people, but I don't think anyone involved in these in these organizations thinks that like it's a one and done deal. But it is so important to to keep in mind that all of this stuff needs to be returned to in a foundational way and reevaluated. Um, businesses have been doing that. Companies have spent the last 50 years honing themselves, finding loopholes, putting pressure on governments. Uh, changing the way they do business, defining new types of employment, creating new technologies, doing all of this stuff to refine their ability to capture worker labor and turn it into surplus that they then hold on to um, or, or that they then distribute to their shareholders, right, uh, to their actual – to the actual capitalists in the economy. Um, we need to do the same. We need to take advantage of the fact that we can communicate more quickly and, and with more access than ever before. We need to build uh, new methods of, organi of organization. When I think back to like those early moments of Occupy, 
uh, you know, in 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 the late uh, 2000s, the things that was the most exciting was it felt like there were types of organization happening that were being enabled by contemporary technologies, but that were tied to a belief that we had to relearn how to organize ourselves. I'd love going into the 2020s to see a similar sort of attitude that we can that we can and must like actually sharpen the ways in which that we organize and to take, you know, take action as activists and laborers. Um, to not do that, to not do what business has done, to not do what capital has done for the last, I said 50 years, but really I mean since post-war. <laughs> really I mean, and honestly even before that, but but when you look at like what has, what has business become since the 1950s, like how have they counteracted labor? How have they anticipated labor and pushed back on them? We need to bring the same ferocity and, and the same strategy to the work that we do going forward. And that's why I'm running for office. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I would never. Uh, while we contemplate uh, the ongoing work of Permanent Revolution, we're going to take a quick break to market some fine products and services to you. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, that was great, whatever that was. <laughs> a mobile game or... Thanks, algorithm. Uh, a, a military, probably a military, you know. Just a mil... Just... The military, some military. Which one? Who knows? Who knows? I want to say someone's... The Swedish military someone got an ad for oh recently. Don't they have mandatory service, though? Like, do they need to advertise? Maybe it really? wasn't the Swedish. Maybe it wasn't the Swedish. You're, you're right. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was only a different one. Fucking... <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, ma- <laughs> mandatory uses of your time, uh huh. So Kamala Harris unveiled a new policy proposal this week, and uh, the reaction it got on Twitter, at least, wasn't super enthusiastic. But also, it wasn't universal. Um, Kamala Harris proposed extending school days till six p.m. to make it better match the workday. Now. Crucial distinction, um, she wasn't saying let's extend class hours till 6 p.m. She was not proposing that, you know, your K through your K through 12 kid or your K through 5 kid is like showing up at 8 a.m. and like just being indoctrinated till 6 Well, who knows? But, uh, you know, being just being trained, uh, just being given vocational just two, training. Two more hours, hours of math problems. Yeah, uh, that that wasn't it. It was mostly built-in after-school activities, but just codified as part of the school day to better match parents' schedules. Um, and it was an interesting proposal because it clearly does solve a major issue for a lot of parents, but also it was an over... Like, 
in a lot of the circles I follow, it was not greeted cheerfully. Uh, it was not a particularly popular proposal. Uh, I certainly didn't like it at first blush. Uh, so I, I thought maybe we could talk through what's good about this proposal, but why so much about it gave so many people pause. Yeah. Um, do we want to like very clearly define what the policy is so that we're working from shared ground? Because I think it's probably useful to – like I – my complaint, my biggest beef with it is about something very particular about how she envisions this working. Um, and so, I, <laughs> yeah, you know, so I think I think there's two issues, right? There yes. is the broader the broader problem that uh, Harris has a proposal for this. And it was interesting. Uh, Sanders and Warren have less clearly defined approaches to the same problem. But this is a problem that affects a lot of working parents. Uh, Patrick, we discussed this a little bit yesterday, uh, that it is tough to make having a kid work with what jobs expect you to commit. Yeah, I, like, I, I had like a conversation with my mom like a, uh, sometime over this year where like, you know, Jessica's three, you know, she'll be in, uh, you know, pre-K next summer and then, you know, kindergarten after that. And I was like, all right, like, I've never really just thought because my mom um, raised us from home, so I was I've always I grew up in a world where I walked home from school, my mom was there. And I was like, well, that's less less of the dynamic these days, at least in my experience. A lot of my friends and 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 others that are uh, having families, and I was like, but like, what do kids do? I was like, what? Like, I don't get off of work at two thirty. I was like, I was like, yeah, sports. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff. I was like, but I, I guess it's like all of a sudden I became extremely stressed, and my mom. Was like, don't worry, we'll figure it out. And I was like, I know, I've just never really thought about it, and that sounds really mm. fucking stressful. Like, what the hell do kids do after school's over? Um, yeah, and it, it's for especially if you have two working parents, and if you don't have, uh, like, I have my mother nearby, but that is again, you know, speaking towards advantages. Like, that's that's something unfortunate to have a, a parent that can like help out, fill in for hours where you're not there. That is not the case for. The vast majority of people, um, and it's not babysitter kind of money. Like, watch my kid for a couple hours tonight. You know, it, like that's not what you spend on this child care on a regular basis. Child per day, care? Oh right? my like, god! No, no, no! Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, my my great union that gets me like a slightly uh, increased <clears throat> salary per year. That all just goes into the bucket. <laughs> like that's I don't actually see any of that money. Um, I, her, she goes to daycare care three days a week. Um, my, my mother has been uh, kind enough and also now that Jessica's old enough and she's a fun person, like enjoys watching her those two days a week. Um, uh, it's still, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I want to say something like $1,300 a month as for three days a week in a, um, mm. affordable area. Like the reason we live in the city that we live was because we did the research on childcare houses. Like it fit within our budget. Um, you know, you add a couple hundred dollars to that for five days a week and you get a mild discount um, if you like bring your like second kid there. But it's not like much, you know, they knock off a little bit. But you're suddenly looking at if you're looking at for two kids, you know, you're looking at almost, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a month to have like them approaching tuition money. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I could teach a child a trade in that, <laughs> with that money, uh, which which may be the future that uh, Harris wants to build. But, uh, but I think, but there is this this problem, which is that uh, the workday and the school day don't really match. And as we alluded to earlier, 
it's not like there's a lot of codified parenting time uh, that people are allowed Very to go handle this 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 childcare stuff. If we drill down into the specifics of Harris's plan, uh, Austin, there was one thing that jumped the fuck out at me, but I'm curious if there like is it the same? So, did you so, get stuck on the same thing? Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, for me, the 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 plan basically says, hey. Uh, five-year grants of up to five million to school districts for what is basically after after after-school programming, right? Um, have things for the kids to do that is not necessarily just more classes, but is some other sorts of activities, etc. Um, the part that jumps out to me is that the plan uh, is, you know, that five years is not going to last forever. Theoretically, you know, it's a pilot program. Maybe, maybe the government says, "Hey, let's continue this program." But the the way that that schools are encouraged to continue, uh, not encouraged, requires schools to continue this funding is through finding non federal, uh, private or public funding, which leaves it up to states or leaves it up to philanthropy. A topic that we would take, you know, would take us hours to dig into. Particularly, why philanthropy uh, is is never a good reason to build public programs around. Uh, but at that point, what what you're ending up doing is like again opening back up to the marketplace, right? There's you know there are chances that some states would find the money in their budgets to support programming like this. Uh, uh, but the idea that like hey, we're going to do this for a few years for you, but after that, what you need to find is a benefactor. What you need to find is like one rich person to pay for all your after-schooling things is like, this goes back to what I was saying before, this idea of like, well, you're framing it in, in business terms from the jump instead of saying this is a right, this is a thing that we think we should invest in at the federal level because this is a necessity for people. This is something that people deserve to have. Instead, we're going to leave it up to the whims of fucking Bill Gates. And it's this and notion of – also who gets of, those benefit factors? Do you know what I mean? Which schools are capable of anyway? Well, to me, I look at that as <coughs> here comes church. Right, like, right, to right. me, immediately, right. I'm, I'm mm. like, this is how local, like, whatever is the predominant religious institution yeah. in your area, this is how they end up running a massive number of daycares. Yeah. Uh, and Listen, the church programs. will do it cheaper. The church will do it for, for you know, you, you don't need to bring in the, the, the very expensive uh, person to do the after-school crafts uh, thing. We've got a Sunday school teacher who will do it. Etc. Right, right, and that will probably also it, be just, underpaid. To be clear, right, but it, it just it opens the door to this not being a standardized program. The right. quality of what kids are being exposed to, the curriculum, and this stuff will have a curriculum, even if it's just unstructured play. No, there's no. It's still yeah. going to be supervised. There's probably going to be a curriculum unless you really take care with it. You, in fact, You're I don't think you get it across. I don't think you get this voted for without a curriculum. You have to be. You will have to tell. Uh, uh, the the country. What is the particular benefit? What are kids doing in that time? But for- if it's left to schools. It'll be it'll be decided at a county board meeting. Totally. As to what the curriculum is for the after school, you know, program, and it's going to be like, uh, you know, hey kids, stay were playing fulfillment center, <laughs> and you know, you get you get your kid home from after school, and it's like, so who were so how how was the uh, after school program today? Oh, it was great. I was the uh, I was the shift supervisor uh, this time. It was. And awesome. I stopped three kids from going to the bathroom. <laughs> 
<laughs> Stanford prison experiment, yeah. just like rolling, uh, which is a bogus experiment. But anyway. But no, but your, your point here, to, to, just to be as clear as possible to folks listening, is that in the same, the same way that you see uh, curricula in, in public schools reflecting the politics and the interests uh, of the, the locations inside of counties, inside of uh, states that are often – ideologically bound to to particular perspectives you look at things like the textbook industry you look at the ways in which that like you look at the way like the texas curricula differs from the new york curricula yep. etc it's it's pretty obvious to see once you start doing the digging this is the same thing that would happen right like this would be another another place where because of the lack of of guide right or guidelines or, or or kind of guiding rails you end up with uh programming that is not necessarily and because it's being funded privately like from the like that is like built in is go get private or state funding you end up losing control of what is happening in that space uh, and it becomes a, a vector by which you know again the word indoctrination is so heavy but I, ideological messaging certainly can can be communicated yeah and I, I think not that federal not that the this. federal level uh, uh, curricula wouldn't have also be ideological in nature like there is no outside of ideology but you would but there are there are uh, there are particular differences once you start looking at the state and county level and once you start looking at who has access to to uh, being in those sorts of roles at the state and county level without any sort of guidelines it's a it's a much 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 more mixed and unpredictable bag sorry yeah that's the that's the thing that just really struck me is this time scale is too short it seems like it would be no time at all before these programs were largely captured uh, by people who do not necessarily have kids best interests at heart mm -hmm. uh, but I think it also just speaks to I think Harris has been easy to pigeonhole and uh, I think this is true of a lot of the sort of Demo the, the sort of Democrat she represents as always having these really uninspiring ultimately counterproductive neoliberal solutions. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of your textbook example of that, which is this, here's the thing that is, it would provide a social good. It would liberate a lot of parents from either, uh, you know, paying massive daycare tuitions, or it would, uh, help a lot of working parents have, uh, care arranged for their children as part of, uh, just the school program. But then attached to that is, oh, but it also has to be self-funding within a few years. And then it's got, and then it, not getting much more investment from the federal government, it's going to have to be done with these local partnerships. And at that point, it's just like, it's going to be fucking school lunch debt all over again. <laughs> it's going to be another thing that, like, you know, families can be fall behind their dues on. It's going to be, uh, you know, fair enforcement at subway stations. This idea that here is a thing that makes life better for everyone. Here is a social service we can provide, but it also has to turn a profit every quarter. It, right. You know it's, what I mean? Like it's, it starts at the compromise. The pitch is yeah. not yeah, yeah, yeah. a bold yes. vision yes. of where, like, like I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> think anyone's an, an, under any illusion that, like, if Bernie Sanders makes it, that like his ideal policies are the ones that get passed. But you know what? He's got the better idea that, like, you go. You go big and then you compromise later. You let the people that are going to force you to compromise force you to compromise yeah. later. You don't start at the compromise. Right. And like, you know, that's the Obama years in general is just like this notion that like, ah, we just come with the practical solution. We'll start there. It's like, no, 
Then they just ask for the compromise after you've already compromised. And, like, that's that's the problem there with, like, the funding idea. It's like, look, yeah, okay, maybe it ended up being more complicated um, when you actually got to, to brass tax. But, like, why start there? Yeah. Like, why start with the shitty version? Start with what you would want it to be and then f- figure out the, the particulars right, later. Right, because the version of this that then gets passed removes the federal funding altogether. Right, prevents, You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's like, oh, well, yeah, we should, uh, or, or cuts it down dramatically and says, oh. To, to, to a year. It's right. a one-year pilot program yes. instead of five years. Yes. Like, you already see where the cuts happen. Yep, totally. I'm also just really skeptical of this notion that there, there, there's a couple other things uh, tied into this. One is that I'm not sure every kid is wired to be under supervision at a school for 10 hours a day. I know I wasn't for most of my childhood. Like when I think about a proposal like this, it just sounds nightmarish. I think about who I was when I was in kindergarten. I think about who I was when I was in fifth grade. Um, Enough traumatic things happened at school during those years that I don't think like, man, if only, if only I'd been at school like three or four more hours a day, uh, that would, that would have been really great. Um, and then the other part of this is this really suits people who are working nine to five jobs, but the people who really need this kind of help may not have nine to five jobs. Like the minute you say, ah, the, the school day doesn't overlap right. with the work day, immediately I'm like, who's work who's day? Work day? Yeah. <laughs> is it the mom who works at like the, the clothing store in the mall until it closes at 9 p.m.? Because yeah. it turns out she's going to work that shift anyway, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, is it someone working in food service? Is it someone you know what I mean? Like, is it someone driving uh, an Uber? Like, yeah, that stuff is is very presumptuous in that way. And again, the, the again the underlying thing here is yes, we should fund our schools more. Yes, there should be after school programming available, not just available, but like encouraged, uh, you know, resourced, um, uh, etc. But I but I but I do like great at the presumption of what a parent looks like in America. It's not what my, my like all of this. I just want to briefly take a, a beat and color something in a little bit about, about who I am and how I got here. Despite honestly, at the time being fairly conservative because I was going to Catholic school. So I went to, I, I, so my mom, uh, I was raised until I was, I'd say 10 in a single parent household. My dad, uh, was uh, my mom and my dad got divorced when I was, uh, a child, like a, a very young, like so young, I barely remember the time before, like barely at all. My earliest memories are like of my dad picking me up from wherever my mom and I were staying, which was like not particularly uh, safe neighborhoods, not particularly uh, wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, and then like going to my dad's house, like early memories are are like walking to the laundromat in the snow with my mom, walking to the grocery store in the, sh- in the snow with my mom. We didn't have a car, stuff like that. Um, uh, we, my parents worked their asses off to send me to a Catholic school because I was in, uh, a, a broke school district that had very little resources. Uh, they went into debt to do that for me. Um, and in the middle of that, my mom had brain surgery. My mom had an arteriovenous malformation, which is a fairly rare condition that required surgery at the time, very experimental surgery, uh, that disabled her for her life. Um, uh, the surgery saved her life, but it rendered her partially blind. It rendered her uh, prone to seizures, especially around certain types of lights. Um, it put her into a great deal of pain and and meant that the time that she spent with me was rare and important um, 
as she recovered for most of her life. Uh, it also meant that we that I lived on disability checks. It meant that I lived on uh, uh, the fact that I. Also, here's a, a great situation of like she had bad medical coverage. She happened to have a boss who supported her during all of this happening. She happened to have a decent boss who like helped pick up some checks for her. We happened to have – there was a moment when she was recovering where we had to move uh, in with her parents. Uh, her parents who had disowned her when she married my father, by the way, because my father is black. Uh, so that was fun. Um, we had to move in with them while she recovered. And uh, while that happened, we happened to have a landlord who did not charge us rent on the apartment we had in New Jersey while we moved into Pennsylvania. Thank fucking God, because like there was no our stuff would have just like been thrown on the on the curb with a different landlord. We thankfully had a, a landlord who was a kind and generous person, uh, a, a, a truly rare trait among landlords <laughs> by their nature. Um, uh, and happened to let us maintain that another protection that you would think uh, a nation could protect, perhaps uh, include is like, hey, if you were are, are uh, go through a, a medical procedure that leaves you out of the workplace, your home is protected X Y Z for for you know some amount of time, um, and then the rest of my life is. Uh, one, my parents working very, very, very hard to make sure I had access to opportunities that uh, that I would not have had, uh, and that and that come at the cost of them setting up savings for the rest of their lives. They are not going to retire early or at all. Um, and then two came from being someone who had access to or was supported by public funding, right? Like disability, um, uh, Medicaid, like these things ended up being very important. In my childhood, I was we, I grew up below the poverty line for much of my life, um, and I had parents who were ambitious and who tried to do big things, but who at every turn, like we th these sorts of of programs mean a lot to me, and I want them to to have investment because I don't get here without them. Likewise, I, and I suspect this is true for a lot of our listeners, things like uh, being able to take out uh, at this point uh, a, a burdensome number of federal loans to get into college. Uh, well, I wouldn't be here without that stuff, right? Like federal programs, federal aid, uh, welfare. Like I absolutely grew up on food stamps. Like uh, there, were, there were moments in my childhood where we were, had better means, where things came together. And there were moments when they absolutely didn't. Uh, and those programs are so important for helping people actually live lives where they're able to change what their means are, where they're able to stabilize, where they're able to get through rough patches because everyone has rough patches. And so often it comes down to how did you get through this, this moment of crisis? Um, if for instance, we my you know, my mom was not able to go live with her parents again for that year when she's recovering from brain surgery. There was no safety net for us. She was not going to be able to go back to the workplace. I, I'm not confident that if she'd been staying in that that uh, the apartment that the landlord was letting us keep, like and wasn't renting out to someone else, if he would have let us keep it, if we were actually living there, the fact that we were not there is what convinced him to to let us uh, keep it. Those sorts of things are like, there is whimsy to it. There is like, who knows? Who the fuck knows what happens when you're in those conditions, when those years hit? And part of the promise of a government is to provide aid for people in those situations. Uh, 
be specifically because if you are already of means, those situations can feel like blips because you have the bankroll already to get through them because you have a, a, a wealthy or a or a sustained family with enough people to do the extra labor of taking care of someone when, when they are sick. Like that stuff ends up being uh, available to a lot of folks. Uh, and, and in having that availability, I think you can get through life and think, well, I didn't need any federal aid to get through life. There are a lot of people who don't have that stuff available, who have a bad boss or who have uh, a greedy landlord or who have a, a, a condition that is that is longer lasting than what my mom went through. Uh, and n- frankly, just like could not pull them, quote unquote, quote unquote, pull themselves out of that one bad situation. Lives just instantly get changed. You just get put on a different track of your life when a medical emergency happens or or when there is a financial crisis or when when you are, you know, uh, when you go to jail for a fucking shitty nothing crime like possession of marijuana or something. Right. Like those. It is so important to have the safety net in place because it produces like the ability for people to live fuller lives and to sustain themselves through moments of crisis. Um, like I would not be speaking to this microphone today without public funding. Like this is just like the open and shut, most open and shut case for me. Um, whatever mythologizing you want to do that's like, well, but Austin, you just worked harder than blah, blah, blah. Like no, no. I just wouldn't be here without there being funding that was available for my family when I needed it. Like that is so much of why I feel so deeply about this and think that this is a, these programs should exist, but they have to exist in ways that don't boil down to how can we make this better for business? How can we allow, how can we partner with businesses to zoom in and, and kind of take ownership of this stuff? It's why I want to talk about this stuff in, in questions of what is right and not just what is profitable or what is like good for the economy long term. It's why I like like cringe when I hear us, not us on the podcast, but us in the left, you know, begin at compromise, as Patrick said, instead of beginning at like the dignity of life and the 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 value of every human being in this country. Um, so that is uh, 2022. Uh, catch me at the polls. <laughs> I'm not running for office. I won't do it. Yeah, I, I think and something like this, what frustrates me is so many proposals like this sort of presuppose a lot of things about what is the status quo for most people. Again, it comes from this, how do we help our middle class? And part of that is about denying that there are people (laughs) who like, who are like, part of it is class denial. Like we, we, we tell people they are middle class all the time when they are working their ass asses off and are wildly precarious. But middle class is a way to say, you don't deserve bad things to happen to you. You did all the right things. You played by the rules if you become poor, things are bad. That's fucked up. You should never be poor. It's you. But other people. Uh, I was just gonna say of. it's even it's even used like on a more kind of like broad societal level as like, wait, you're middle class. You don't deserve food stamps. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you should like even if oh sucks. wait like like this happened to to me like weirdly like. I was in a position where I needed to sign up for food stamps and I was talking to other members of my family and they're like, you can pay your rent. Why do you need food stamps? I'm like, because all I do is pay my rent. Uh-huh. Like, I, 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 can, I applied and I, can, I am in the, the numbers yeah. that get food stamps. 
what do you mean I don't deserve food stamps? It's like, no, that's for people who are really in trouble. We're actually poor. Yeah. It's like, what? it's like this whole societal thing of like the middle class, like just because like, you know, you have a place that you can rent or like something that else that sets you apart from people who are truly homeless doesn't mean that you're not, you don't need federal help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and a lot of times, again, it's sort of like viewed as shameful to even admit you need that yeah. stuff. I lived in Boston. Absolutely. Like, lived in the city of Cambridge for like seven years, eight years. For about a third of that time, I absolutely qualified for housing assistance. Like would have like would have absolutely qualified for, uh, I think it's called like Section 8 housing. Um, didn't apply for it because the backlog was multi-year like there was just no point like i can put my name in the hopper and be like (laughs) hey you think you can hook me up with the house and the answer would have been like yeah in five years and i'm like well in five years i hope to not need it man yeah so uh, you know ended up just uh you know scraping by and 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 making do but uh you know there's there's these sort of twin sort of twin forks of like one it's shameful to it's it's being it's portrayed as shameful to require this help and second the process of getting that help is often so inefficient and so shitty that there's just so many hurdles that you get to it and what 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 minuscule gains you would get from using these programs you get to it and you're like ah fuck it you know i'll just i'll just make do um, I want to talk about fucking bureaucracy. I remember being taken out of school early because my mom had to make an appointment at the fucking this uh, very specific, uh, like the welfare uh, check place, and it would line up with when I would be out of school, right? Mm-hmm. Like shit, oh, like yeah, that. Absolutely. Where, like you have to like you're taking a kid out of school early because you have to make a certain appointment, and like <sighs> it just kind of runs counter to the point of the program being to help families too. Like uh, the whole thing is. I think there's so, got so under, many underlying so many of these things, and this is a much quicker point than the last one I'm, I'm trying to make, uh, is just so much of what we're talking about here is underscored by the fact or built on top of the fact that what capitalism in the 21st century has done is demanded that everyone under it be more flexible, mm-hmm. not be the homogeneous worker, but instead be the person who the ho- the homogeneous employee, but instead be the worker who works a broader range of hours who um, is, is, you know, potentially at the office later is potentially working different hours than the nine to five that is pres- presumed uh, and uh, is likely affected by some degree of their marginalization uh, with, you know, including poverty, in- including, you know, disability, including race, gender, et cetera, sexuality. Um, uh, and all of those things mean that we need, programs to start at a real evaluation of what the worker looks like in 2019 instead of that is built on a nostalgic ideal of a nine to five middle class worker that has not actually been accurate for years and years and years. Um, uh, and, And ideally something that takes into account the fact that businesses will again push towards delegitimizing or or moving o- away from that style of of traditional worker in the future programs that don't programs that are able to be afforded to people who do sorts of work and also to to you know parents and children who fit into different types of schedules right like another thing that we didn't we didn't bring up in terms of like breadth of what work is is sex work uh, a huge category of labor that 
would not benefit from from you know any of the sort of proposals around vacation time that we talked about in the first half of the episode um, uh, that has a different type of schedule and is a great example of how the sort of like fit the fit this particular model of American laborer in order to get the benefits uh, that are associated just doesn't exist right and so or it does not fit in in any way um, and in that way is has an affinity with the Uber driver, has an affinity with the freelance writer, right? Those There is an overlap there that is worth uh, spending time with and, and, and thinking about um, in terms of what is the future of labor and, and, and how do we give benefits to – how do we build a world around what those, those needs are because it is not a program just for nine-to-five parents, you know? Uh, a couple last things uh, just real quick. I also think it would be cool if we had a proposed – again, if we had a set of policies in place that made it so you didn't necessarily have to choose between having a career and a job <laughs> and spending more time with your kids. Totally. Um, if there were just more – if, again, there were more norms around flex time and uh, leave to, to uh, deal with child-rearing uh, responsibilities and if we lived in a culture that was uh, – didn't presume that the balance of that would fall on moms – as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, dads. The other thing uh, that has sort of been bugging me about a proposal like this is, uh, oh, God, I just forgot it. Okay. Hold this on. happens. It happens. <laughs> yep. I was going to say, part of that um, original backlash, it felt like, was at least in the 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 part of it that I that I saw was a lot of like, uh, and maybe this is just the people that I follow, but I do feel like there's been kind of a a, a partial sea change at, at least within people who are workers and understanding kind of like, hey, we're already fucked. We shouldn't be adjusting things to fix mm-hmm. to to yeah. towards this model that is already messed up, like. You know, the whole the idea being that maybe it would be better for parents to just get off work earlier. Right. Right. <laughs> like well, also, people are already overworking themselves like and yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I think to that and I remember what my point was. I also don't. I don't remember it being such a bad thing to be a latchkey kid when I was growing up mm. like. By the time, again, like by the time I was in fifth grade, uh, if not younger, I was walking home, uh, you know, a mile or so to to my house and letting myself in with my house key, very adult, uh, and would be left unsupervised for hours uh, frequently because my parents were going to school at nights, and so a lot of a, a lot of my childhood was. Uh, you know, being home at three three thirty in the afternoon and not seeing a parent or caregiver until you know eight nine at night. It's pre cell phones too, right? So yeah. It's not, even, not, not even a world where you know you conceive of a similar. Well, that doesn't really happen these days. Like parenting has changed so much in a really negative direction. That could be a whole different separate podcast about <laughs> over parenting. But there's like that just presumes like Rob, you're responsible. You got this. Like. There's not like a text check-in that's like, "Hey Rob, you're home." You know, like yeah. there's dinner in the in the fridge, right? And like there's a note. <laughs> and, and look, yeah. I mean, I think there were some times where I where that was shitty, and I would think, you know, I, I probably could have 
done with more attention, more people looking after me. Uh, but for the most part, it was fine. The worst part about those years was honestly just like there was too much fucking homework coming from school. That was that was the big issue. But like seeing my parents, no, what did I need? I had reruns of sitcoms. Uh, you know, I, was, I was good. Fraser's on, baby. Yeah. yeah, but but I think the the other part of this that is weird to me is and I think we've talked a little bit about this, uh, Patrick, with like this focus on kids need preschools, kids need daycares, kids need after school stuff. Yep. And what's weird is I flash back and I'm like, I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Nor did I feel. Nor did I feel like anyone was in any way being neglectful by the fact that like. I went home by the time I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, I was expected to be able to just like not destroy the house or physically endanger myself for four right. or five hours a night. Because doing that enabled parents to go to school. It enabled people to yes. deal with different uh, work schedules. And now there's this presumption that that is not a possibility. And I do wonder if... Some of this is also related to the criminalization of different types of parenting, right? Like, you know, the, the, oh yeah, the, go do a Google search on like yeah. the, the the overzealous uh, parents who will, you know, what you did. The notion of like walking home like a mile, like these days, certain neighborhoods, like especially the, <laughs> the upper class neighborhoods, like you're gonna get some helicopter parent that is gonna <laughs> helicopter over to another parent and. They're gonna they're gonna call the cop. Go, you will read like cops called and parents then get pulled into by virtue of the cops being involved first. Child services needs to come and then investigate. They probably gonna clear these parents and like it'll be it, it'll be fine, but not always necessarily. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And it's like, yeah, there there is the, I mean, yeah, the, the culture of not trusting children to be independent actors that can take care of themselves is like a a systemic like cultural issue. Um, this seems like they're. It, I get the sense there's a little bit of like pulling away from that in, in certain in certain sectors, but um, uh, yeah, it's a real that that's a real problem because like yeah, like you would like to be able to think because yeah, I know all the things that I did in terms of like how my parents just like I don't know. All right, see ya. You know, you'll be fine. Um, it's just it's hard to I try to remember that and internalize that, but there's also yeah, you're right to a certain degree. What you want to do as a parent runs up to a culture and what they'll allow you to do or the, the point that others will intervene to say that what you're doing is wrong um, and invoke, you know, you know, services to, to, to bring that back in. Oh, uh, that will do it for this week. I will continue to advocate for my benign neglect agenda. Uh, over the coming weeks and months on uh, here here on Waypoints, uh, but that will do it for this edition. We turned Jessica out fine. To your house, we turned Rob. out fine. Walk, Rob. walk to yeah. walk to Rob's Rob, house. Just, He's got. Go it. ahead. It was here, the winter. Uncle Rob. Have an Amtrak pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Here's, I'll, I'll write two addresses and two phone numbers on this sheet of paper. If anyone asks what's up, just just show them this. God, <laughs> you know where you're going. So funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Patrick, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Patrick Klubbeck. And I just want to do a short shout out. I just this morning finished listening to, uh, you know, here's a Waypoint checkbox. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, citations needed. A wonderful podcast that like talks about a lot of the issues that we um, 
unpacked here. They did an episode on automation and how that is used as a mirage to essentially crush the worker. Um, and then it becomes impossible to know when actually market conditions like force them to like have to to make crummy decisions or if it's just covering up all sorts of uh, different ways that you like try and crush the worker and unionization. So a lot of things, a lot of through lines, thematic through lines here are discussed um, in that episode. So just want to give a shout out to that. Austin. Uh, Austin underscore Walker on Twitter. And my shout out is going to be deeply predictable. Did you know that the uh, mm. the the great contemporary Marxist theorist David Harvey once did a podcast series called uh, Reading Capital with David Harvey back in 2007 uh, and has this year again done a new updated version of Reading Capital. Capital, uh, Marx's largest tech uh Gurdjieff might be longer anyway capital uh extremely important to Marx's thought and very difficult to read if you haven't done it before um Harvey has done an updated kind of free lecture series uh episode by episode going through all the chapters of of capital um that is excellent David Harvey's work is 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 like pretty foundational for a lot of contemporary Marxist thought uh, that is available if you just go to like your podcast search thing and type in the People's Forum or if you go to davidharvey.org. Uh, I just started listening to it because the his first lecture series was so, so helpful the first time that I was engaging with Marxist thought uh, and having him do it again and pretty much lay out straight away that like, hey – why do I do this uh, 10 years later? Because it turns out that 10 years is a lot of time when it comes to analyzing capitalism and, and thinking about uh, the ways in which Marxist thought can can uh, kind of pick away at it and, and uh, reveal the way it works. Um, uh, it's available on YouTube also if, if you do a search for uh, David Harvey or for just reading Marxist Capital. Um, uh, you'll find – uh, episodes up on the People's Forum NYC. If you're more of a visual learner, uh, you can you can do that. And I, when I say a visual learner, I mean it's like you know occasionally there are some slides, uh, but mostly it's it's David Harvey sitting in a chair, speaking into a microphone and lecturing about a very dense book uh, for <laughs> a few hours. But that is my quick quick waypoint. Cotto at a underscore Cotto. Wait. You got it. My, my, I love it when this yes, happens. A, <laughs> Indication, uh, baby. Uh, fucking everyone should sleep. That's my shout out. Get good sleep. Get some good sleep. Get some good sleep. Why didn't you sleep? Can you I, tell Rob that? Yeah, hey, Rob. Rob? <laughs> Too late for me. <laughs> Go on without me. Uh, at A underscore Cado underscore appears. Real quick, I just want to say C-A-D-O. A yeah. lot of people don't know Cado. Cado. Because my name is Ricardo. Right. I took out some letters. Yeah. And there's Cotto. It's like Boston Ca- Ricardo. Yeah. Ricardo. Fucking Ricardo over here. Uh, I used. I. Why do people think Ricardo is a name? Whom? Literally, my entire fucking life. On I got fucking the honor roll one year at my school, and on the honor roll of like this is everyone who got the honor roll. It said fucking Richardo. That's not what? a name. That's not a name. People trying to do like an Italian chuck. Yeah, Richardo. Like, yeah. hey, I got I got this slice of bread. I want to okay. put some Richardo on it. <laughs> Richardo. Yeah. Uh, uh, you ever get Richie? Do you ever get like a? Uh, I got be... Ricky. Oh I, my god. I got god. Ricky Ricardo a lot. Oh, fuck. I love Lucy. Was on oh, all over right, the rerun. So like it was like Ricky Ricardo, eh? I'm like, uh huh, yeah, great. Don't call me Ricky. I fucking hate it. 
Richardo. That's the new one. You shouldn't have said that. Kato, you shouldn't have told us that. I'm not. You shouldn't have. Just Please. We're good. Thank you. We're so, good. <laughs> quick thing. Fun fact. This is a shout out mm. to my past. Ooh. Very nice person. Helped me build my first PC as I was going off to college. Cool, cool person. Good guy. We had a nice conversation while he's building my PC. But I so impressed him. He was like, this kid's just been indoctrinated by the liberals too much. Uh-huh. I know what I will do. I will help him. Yeah. And I will cut him uh, discs of <gasps> the collected speeches of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Particularly from his uh, pre-presidential run. So after he lost the presidential primary, but before he ran in 80, uh, he did this series of radio lectures. Uh, Lectures is a really grand word to apply to these things. Uh, Radio bits, basically, uh, where he sort of laid out his philosophy. And I was like, you know, Reagan's very important. Uh, I will Mm -hmm. listen to these things. And... I remember the exact moment I was lost forever to conservatism was Reagan would do this thing where everything had a folksy anecdote attached to it. And there was this one where he's talking about how the government doesn't know how to help people. And even though it's well-meaning, it just doesn't. It just bumbles around because it doesn't know the real circumstances that Americans are are, are facing as they try to do their jobs and uh, grow wealthier. And, he, and he's like, and I think of the story of the farmer who was visited by a well-meaning man from Washington from the agricultural uh, Agriculture Administration. Uh, and the farmer was trying to explain why he needed why he needed more money this year, why he needed more uh, m- more funds from the federal government. And the that man from Washington, he said, "Well, it doesn't seem to me like you've had such a bad year. It says here that you had a you know perfectly average, maybe even slightly above average amount of rainfall. Uh, your crop should have come in beautifully this year." And and that farmer he turned to that he turned to that man from Washington. He said, "Yeah." And I was here the night it came. And immediately I was thinking, yeah, but wouldn't the guy from Washington know if there's a fucking torrential flood in one night? Like, wouldn't he have, wouldn't he have a next sheet of paper with, like, <laughs> period in which that rain came down? Wouldn't that be something they cross-indexed? And immediately I was like, how fucking dumb would you have to be to think this is, like, a useful or insightful argument? about how government works, about how bureaucracy works, or, like, <sighs> how anything works. And you had to be dumb enough to be a Reagan supporter. And that's that's when I knew that. And go check those elections. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, turns that, out. That, that was basically it for me, where I was like, this is, this is, this is your king? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Please, uh, please, they would never. We hope you've enjoyed the break. <laughs> Apologies for the Reagan aside. Uh, please be sure to rate and review Wait. us on your podcast. Yes. Re- re- oh, never mind. You were th- you were thinking like re- like like patricide. Yeah. <laughs> Reaganicide, like the death, the killing of Ronald Reagan <laughs> by the hero yeah, Robert Zachney. That's that's a hell of a movie. I'd love to see I'd Deacon lo- shoot that. I would yeah. love to see the Deacon's cut of. God. <laughs> Uh, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio uh, next week. Until then, do not give in to astonishment. Waypoint Radio.
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Perfect. All right. Good one. Good one. Well, we solved it, gang. We did it. Now we're done. That's it. So, <laughs> it's always sunny in Philadelphia. The gang solves capital. Fuck. Oh. Neglect your kids. It'll be good for them. <laughs> I, we turned out That's fine. That's the takeaway. We turned out fine. <laughs> it's just great. Witness the beginning of the dark. There's two tweets. What's the other tweet? Welcome to a new world of gods and monsters. And then the conjoined tweet is welcome to the beginning of the dark universe. No other tweets. Love it. Wow. Love it. Shout outs to that. Uh, got my. Got so instead, they abandoned uh, a cinematic universe and are just. They're doing the individual movies. Yeah. They have actually gave. Um, there was a really good horror movie that came out last year called Upgrade um, with a uh, knockoff. Tom Hardy, what's his name? Um, oh, uh, fuck. Yeah, that guy who I always see from a certain angle. Go, wait, that's Tom Hardy. And then uh, the yeah. trailer continues and you go, like, oh, wait, <laughs> that's, that's not, the other guy. It's the other one. He's I'm fine. Not, I, just, I just Googled not Tom Hardy. Um, <laughs> did it work? It did. The first image. Uh, yeah. No, that's not Tom Hardy and Prometheus. That, this will give me the answer. Uh-huh. Logan Marshall Logan Green. Mar- yeah, uh-huh. Totally. He's a very like competent, like yeah. you know, whatever. Um, was upgrade good? Was upgrade films. upgrade was solid? It's very good. It's so wait, very wait, good. wait, what's that have to do with the? So the guy who did upgrade, <laughs> okay, oh, is doing Invisible is the, Man. Is, is doing the writer director? Movie. Someone just yeah. uploaded a, a picture of Tom Hardy into this uh, into his carousel of images on Google, at no least one, on the mobile version. No one uploaded anything. They just automate. That's just the way Google works. <laughs> or are you sure it's not? Oh wait, him? it's a split. It's a split. It's okay. a split. It's a split with him next to Tom. Next Hardy. to Tom that's Hardy. Why. Yeah, that's okay. why. <laughs> Tom Hardy feels no shame over MySpace photos. Oh boy. Yo, uh, Tom Hardy is doing. Tom. 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 Tomer. This is not not safe covered, for work, even though I work from home. Tom Hardy MySpace. Just careful. Well, you're in a, um, you're yeah, in a, lock, a you're locked, locked space. You're good. When when is this article from? I don't even see it. Uh, Not embarrassed. You said. It feels no. You hear? I'll, I'll just. I see it. it. No embarrassment. Feels no shame. <laughs> no shame. Feels no shame. This is from five years ago. Hmm. You know what? Don't feel any shame. No. The, no. No. It. That's fine. That's look. MySpace was a place. Um. That was probably before he top. was famous, right? Like right Top before eight, he was baby. famous, God, I was never on MySpace. Mm-mm. That is oh, the MySpace most hilarious. So like MySpace, MySpace, like I was in the first wave of the first eight schools of Facebook, but that was my freshman year of college, and it didn't do anything. So like the way you like connected, right. like I went to party, and then you spam friend invites to people was uh, MySpace. Was MySpace? Wow, this picture. <laughs> 
Yep. Holy shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very MySpace picture. It, like, it, it is. It is 100% MySpace. The angle, the, the lips. The hat. The hat. The MySpace best. was so thirsty. The best. Before Link thirsty me. was a term. Link me. <laughs> Great. Uh, is, is there not a link? Did you not put a link in? I thought Patrick put a link in. No, you, you, you just found, type you found in, it on your own. Yeah, just type in Tom Hardy. I got I, I DM'd him. Okay. The, the, all you need oh, is his image, Bob. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's MySpace. Like, if you ask me to conjure an image, like, what do I remember about MySpace? God. That image is MySpace. It's so funny. Yeah. This is so good. Oh my God. People embedding He's emo music onto their page. Too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Oh, this is great. How you feeling, Ryan? I've got no shame about my MySpace photos, especially the one of me in my underpants, which is a glorious photo of a man in his natural habitat. <laughs> his underpants. <laughs> That's very funny to me. God. Uh, redeem code. <laughs> oh, my God. Hold on. <laughs> I'm just going to put this into the pod, pod channel. Thank you, so I can see it. That's important. Oh my God! What is, is that? A is he? Is that a turkey? Is that a baby? Chicken? What is I think that? So you put a, that's you put a turkey. Dick on a turkey? Is that a wing? That's, that's, that's a wing. That's a wing. That's a it's wing. flapping. Uh, I just need you to know. I was trying to redeem a Death Stranding code, but the last thing I copied was Logan Marshall Green's name. So <laughs> put it on Twitter right now. I don't. <laughs> no one's gonna know because no that, one knows who say Logan. That, say that you're running. Say that you're running a contest. No, <laughs> uh, I got the Death Stranding codes now. Sorry, Tom, Tom Hardy. Amazing. Uh, Hideo Kojima trying to get Tom Hardy, but only getting Logan Marshall Green would be so choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I figured out why Helen Mirren was at Kojima's thing. Oh, why? Why? Um, her uh, stepson is the head uh, head of A and R and like the head of like internal music like licensing yada 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 at like Sony mm. like, like PlayStation, and so he like did soundtrack stuff. Yeah, but in her Instagram okay. post, it was like, oh, you know, he does all the music, and I was like, uh, I so hung out funny. with the, I was like, I hung out with the co composer, and I'm not putting that on Helen Mirren, like yeah. you know, whatever, like. I was like, I hung out with the co- like the co-composer of this training last Friday. I was like, you are not the stepson of Helen Mirren. That would have come up. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alex Hackford, head of creative music affairs at PlayStation. That's so funny. Um, did uh, did y'all see the thing, the, the video of Matt Galt at that event? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was very yep. funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Extremely good. Let me take one more big bite out of this pear, and then I'm good. Mm-hmm. What you got there, Bosk? I don't know my pears. You know what? I'm not afraid to say it. I don't know my pears. I couldn't tell you the difference between various pears. What are the differences between various pears? Yeah, I want to know. Is it just color? I mean, Is it like apples where it's like a, like acidity? There's definitely like texture. Uh, I mostly those... know Bosk because it's like the pear that I like just generally like the most. It's got a slightly like, drier flavor mm. um, and tends to hold up a little better in the fridge, I find. Hmm. Um, Did y'all see the thing about my wild. 
Do y'all see the Sakurai quote about why Mai isn't in that game? Yeah. Okay. That was yes. fucking hilarious. Was very funny. He is, good, he is precious. Good boys and girls. Good boys and girls. Of all it. ages. Of all ages. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> It's a shame because I think Mai is a, is good. Mai is yeah. a good I feel like girl. Sakurai was. Te- I think Sakurai shaming was ad- like. Uh huh. I don't. Is he shaming or is he admitting something? He's to admitting. Us? He's yeah. like, I, I think I couldn't make this would be too right. much yeah. for me. <laughs> I, I, like everyone else took that to be like, oh, he's you know shaming your horniness over this uh, uh, King of Fighters character. No, 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 no. Yeah. I think Sakurai was telling was he's he's out there, but he's not. He doesn't you know not very very internal about his feelings, and I think we we learned a lot about. Sakurai today. You're right. You're right. All right. I've eaten my pear. I've. I have a coffee. I've redeemed this death stranding code. I'm ready to Logan do a podcast. Marshall five. Great. He's he was in that um. The her story uh, follow up. Oh, was he in that? Yeah, That's I sat next to him at, e- at E3 oh. when I was seeing an extremely boring demo of uh, the that game company, uh, Sky, whatever that uh, thing was called, that oh. kind of really just came and went after five years of development. With I no didn't one know that that was it. even them. I didn't even know that was them. Oh, that's yeah. a bummer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's oh, I got out. bored about 10 minutes into my like 40-minute demo. Ooh. It was just like, release me from this <laughs> sweet uh, death grip. But I was it was in a small Annapurna booth. And all of a sudden, I look over, and of course, I'm like, "That looks like Tom Hardy." And I was like, "No, that's not Tom Hardy. That's that other guy who's in the the game, the Her Story sequel." Because um, remember, didn't I tell you that they yeah, spoiled yeah, yeah. They like spoiled, said, the, game. spoiled yes. the story? Yes. And yeah, he was there sitting next to me with one of his buds, um, an actor I didn't uh, recognize. Um, um, okay, we should talk about is is yeah. a thing we should do. I'm ready to, to dot is. I'm ready to time. All right. Uh, let's go on 30. Yep. Sorry, another 30 seconds is a normie time. 